Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to the first edition for 2023 of The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, we are focused on the future. What will a new year mean for what goes in our glass? Richard Siddle from The Buyer is my guest. Uh, He has his crystal ball. Uh, Plus, later on, as ever, some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You need to be a brave person to make predictions in this day and age. Many of the challenges the drinks world faced in 2022 could not have been envisioned. That said, there were clouds on the horizon this time last year, from harvest failures and dry goods shortages uh, to duty changes. And most of the things that Richard Siddle, editor-in-chief of The Buyer, predicted uh, did come to pass. Uh, So it's... uh, Time to do it all over again to look ahead to what 2023 might mean for the drinks world. Richard, the chief to his mates, uh, is the man with the crystal ball, uh, just the one. And he joins uh, me now. Uh, Richard, welcome to the drinking hour. Welcome back. Yeah, happy new year to you, Chief. Yeah, nice, nice to be back. Thank you. Nice to have you. And I did a, um, a a quick scorecard for you last year just to see how you got on with your predictions, and it was um, the hit rate was very, very high. Uh, I, I should say. So it's oh, uh, well done for that. For for starters, um, you you know your stuff, uh, but we didn't doubt that anyway. And. <laughs> We didn't talk about an impending war in Ukraine uh, last year, actually. We did talk about all the other things, um, harvest failures, dry goods, shortages. That really has had, along with the war in Ukraine, quite a profound effect, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, it's just, well, I mean, in a way, I didn't really want to uh, follow up. My predictions last year were sort of uh, quite pessimistic. So in a way, it's a bit bit depressing to know that they, quite a lot of them came to pass. But yeah, the Ukraine war has clearly pulled the rug across underneath all our feet, really, not just in the drinks industry or the wine industry, but focusing in on our own sector, then yeah, I mean, a lot of those issues around supply chain, dry goods, packaging, have all really, in a way, got to a point where the the wine industry has an amazing capacity to, to almost reinvent itself every year. You know, there's always different issues, you know, and, and it may well be due to the climate, due to harvests or currency or it could be down to you know geopolitical issues but what's happened with the ukraine war is it, it's just it just it's all the factors around dry goods and, and glass in particular and, and the closure of glass furnaces and, and, I, and i think there's nothing we realize quite how much we relied on ukraine as part of our supply chain um yeah what from i remember i went to the bulk, bulk wine fair in november and um there were kind of buyers importers exporters buyers there and they were all kind of almost sort of saying they, they just hadn't seen the, the, the kind of training conditions like this before. It was all completely new. Everything had been ripped up. And they were almost having to like sort of rework how to work, work together again, if that makes sense. Yeah, I saw it uh, myself in uh, in Spain in August. I was at uh, Hidalgo, uh, the makers of um, La Gitana, the most popular manzanilla and one of my favourite drinks. And their half bottle used to be this beautiful fluted 375 bottle. Uh, we, we had a, a quick manzanilla and it was in a very ordinary 375 bottle. And I said, "What? why have you changed that beautiful bottle? Not thinking at all. And of course, the answer was spoke has gone effectively hasn't it you can get what you're given effectively yeah i mean from what i understand you know and, it, and it's when you go to things like the bulk wine fair where it all really kind of comes to the fore 
is because they've had so many glass furnaces either closed down or be suspended or have to limit their supply, it just basically means there's just a, a massive shortage of glass um, in the market and all those beautiful little Provence bottles that we all like and all those, as you say, different styles of, of bottle designs, you know, they're now literally making one type of bottle and, and that's it. But, I mean, on, a, on a, the wider scale, the reason why the buyers and the importers are all having to, like, rework the new rules of um, trading is that normally what happens is, um, you know, people will go along to trade fairs and they'll or they'll go along and meet each other at, at producers or at the winery and they'll kind of agree a 12- to 18-month contract and they'll say, okay, we'll buy – we agree to buy your grapes or your wines at a certain amount – for a certain period of time that particularly when it comes to dealing with retailers that is almost like you know tablets of stone you know they, they just don't get changed you know they, they are if, and if they do get changed the suppliers and the producers get penalized enormously but what's happened because of the glass and other dry good increases in, in costs is that literally by the time you get on the plane and, and fly home again a lot of those costs are completely untenable they've, they've completely changed the whole situation's moved on again the glass furnaces glass companies have put the prices up the bottling companies have put the prices up so what you're happening now is that supermarket buyers even are having to agree even two or three changes to pricing during one trading year and it and it's that which has completely thrown the whole market upside down it's just it's just not how people work it's just not how the industry is, is used to uh, dealing with their cash flow, dealing with their their planning, and you know that's that's before you even start getting into things like um, availability of grapes and harvests and that kind of thing. So that's the sort of the the, the kind of the context to which the sort of the second half of twenty twenty two was played out on, and it's very much where we start this year. And I think in a way, everyone who's trying to do their budget plans for this year will be scratching their heads even more and making it up completely as I go along, to be honest. So when we get to the prediction, sadly, we don't want to be too pessimistic and we have some more positive things to talk about as well. But on this, uh, we're not out of the woods at all, are we? No, no, no. And, and potentially it's going to get worse because, um, you know, a lot of these issues have only really sort of bedded in over the last, say, over the last six months. I mean, clearly, as I said, the industry has an amazing capacity to change and adapt and it, and it has to, you know, in the, in the day... Retailers need to get wines on shelves. Restaurants need to have wines on in their cellars. And um, so there's always a, a means to an end. It, it just means that people are having to be a lot more flexible, going to have to be a lot more. You know, we, we, we hear time and again, you know, have the importance of partnerships and suppliers and having close relationships, which I think sometimes is a, is a bit of um, hot air, <laughs> to be frank. But I think this is really where those partnerships and relationships are really going to come to the fore. And, and those who genuinely do have good partners and, and, and particularly retailers who are willing to adapt and change. So I think what's going to happen for the consumer's point of view is you're going to see a lot of different things happening on your shelf. You know, you're not going to go in and think, oh, I really like that bottle of Pinot Grigio or I really like that bottle of Australian Shiraz or that, or that Argentinian Malbec. Because it might be there one one month, and it probably won't be there the next month. It's a bit like you know when you go to Aldi and Lidl, you know, you couldn't mm. you couldn't sort of like have a regular shopping basket at Aldi and Lidl because it changes so much. And suppose they they in a way have been behaving in this way for, for quite a while, but but it hasn't been because of because of um, the reasons I've just set out. But I think that's that's where I think for the consumer's point of view, you know, they're going to just find the whole wine aisle. Is, is going to be moving and changing all the time throughout this this year. Yeah, I always say when I make recommendations that if you find a wine you like at Aldi or Lidl, go straight back and buy a case uh, because you probably won't see it again. So if you really like it, at least you've got six or 12 bottles, assuming you can afford to do that, of course. And those wines are normally very competitively priced. That brings us neatly on to a piece that I wrote for you at The Buyer uh, just before Christmas. It was an interview, uh, what we call a Q&A question and answer with uh, Leslie Cook, the buying director for Lanchester Group up in County Durham, for whom I do some consultancy work just for full disclosure. And uh, what they did last year, we were talking about harvest failures and and the complete absence um, 
in the year ahead of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, an incredibly popular wine, of course. And although at the premium level, we were still expecting uh, good wines because uh, what had been made was good, um, there was a complete absence at uh, the, the, the lower price uh, tiers um, because of uh, harvest conditions. And what uh, she did was effectively remake the popular wine that they make from Marlborough, um, Nikatiki, in South Africa with a different name and a different brand, uh, Maloko Bay. And it was a huge success, actually. And it's pretty remarkable, you were alluding to this just now, how buyers are able to adapt, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a great example, actually. And I think the whole Marlborough, New Zealand Blanc could probably be used as a great case study in the years to come, really, in terms of like how you know people have sort of put all their eggs in that basket when it comes to Sauvignon Blanc over the last sort of four or five years, and the consumers have loved it. But it's all reliant on the weather, and um, it wasn't just last year. I think the last, I think the previous two years, the um, Marlborough Blanc, sorry, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc um, harvest was very short. So there has been a, a, a problem with Sauvignon Blanc for over a couple of years. So the buyers have had a bit more time to go around the world and, and source and blend. And we have to remember. These are ultra professionals who have the capacity to be able to go to somewhere like Chile or South Africa and, and work with producers there. And they kind of blend wines bespoke to a kind of almost like a taste profile. So whilst they can't obviously replicate completely Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, they can use a lot of the, the characteristics from it. And actually, I think interestingly, what's going to, what's going to be, um, you know, now that New Zealand actually has had a good harvest, you know, how many of those buyers are now going to go back uh, to the level they did, because what's what's happened is they've been able to go to South Africa, they've been able to go to Chile, they've been able to go to other parts of the world and make, you know, uh, wannabe or look-alike, well, not look-alike, um, sort of like, you know, taste-like, <laughs> at, at a much, um, you know, a, a lower price, you know. So wines from South Africa or Chile are now on shelf at a lower price than your average Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. And actually, you could argue that the taste profile is different and it's offering consumers something new and something that they haven't actually had for, for before. So, and, they're, and they're, they're liking it. So you might find, actually, uh, there could be a bit of a kind of a rebalance and actually we're going to start seeing more Sauvignon Blanc coming from different parts of the world. Yeah, that, that's it. it's a great example to show how flexible and how, how quickly the market moves based on harvest conditions, pricing, and it's the ability of, of both the producer and the buyer to blend wines and to work together to create bespoke uh, styles for, for different markets. And that's, I think, what makes the wine industry such a just, a, just an incredible movable, movable force, really, um, which is why, although the, the macro situation is gloomy, the way it, it, way it can respond is also incredibly healthy and positive. And that wine that I mentioned, Maloko Bay, went on to get a silver medal at the IWSC, um, judged blind. Not bad for a, a debut for a, a new wine. Um, more on that um, at, at the end of, of this, this hour. But back to predictions. That ingenuity that led to the creation of that particular wine, uh, we're going to have to see a lot more of that, aren't we? Because the challenges are coming left, right and centre. You know, Leslie said in that interview for you, uh, for the buyer, uh, you know, it's normally Mother Nature that challenges you, whereas this time it's actually everything else. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, it, that's the kind of that. <laughs> she, she, if, if people haven't read it, they should definitely try and try and seek it out. So I think she sums it up very well. And um, and being a, a company like Lanchester, who also have their own bottling uh, company as well, um, they are really at the sort of the forefront of of being able to see where these changes and where these trends are happening. Arguably, sort of you know a year out, so they're able to, to change and move. I think what what's also interesting, just, just picking up on that, is actually how some of the big brands, so things like Echo Falls, Jacobs Creek, um, some of the, the the brands that we might associate coming from a particular country or a particular region, some of those brand owners are actually now also exploring how they can take those brands into different countries. You know, obviously Jacobs Creek comes from a particular creek in Australia, but it, it, they're now exploring, can they actually take that brand in, and, and make a Jacobs Creek in South Africa or somewhere else? So, you know, the, I think that's interesting is, is it's, again, it's changing the rules. It's changing, it's, it's spreading the category. Because um, ultimately, I think we also have to remember 
the consumer, the average bottle of bottle of wine in the UK is still hovering around six pounds, and, and, and a lot of that is down to duty increases, not not through necessarily people wanting to spend more on a bottle of wine. So the pressure on retailers and suppliers and producers to 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 have wines on shelf at below eight pounds is still enormous, and that in a way drives a lot of this energy. Is that you know when they, when when buyers are going around the world looking at looking at options, yes, they may work with a producer. Um, one producer might be able to supply them wines at sort of 10, 15, 20 pounds. But in order for them to, to take those wines on, they'll also say to them, well, can you, can you give us a wine that we can sell it between sort of five and seven pounds? So you're, you're, those, those dynamics are, are, are very much at the core of what, how the industry works. And I think that's where I think we're going to see some of the bigger players, some of the bigger consolidated, some of the bigger producers are going to benefit from all this because they're going to have that, that volume and that flexibility to be able to offer uh, wines at key price points and in key styles for these buyers who, you know, yes, nature hasn't helped. Uh, the geopolitics geo- doesn't help. But at the end of the day, the consumer, when they're walking down the wine aisle, they just want to buy a bottle of wine they can afford for that night's meal. And, and it's the buyer's job to make sure that they, they have wines on shelf at those price points. And talking of not helping very much, uh, this time last year, we were looking ahead to uh, what threatened to be a costly shambles with a, a big change um, in the duty regime uh, for uh, wine uh, based on a number of factors, including alcohol uh, content. The Chancellor of the Exchequer was then uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, a little later, he ceased to be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, a little later, uh, he ceased to be anything. And now he's the Prime Minister. That was the kind of year we just had. Um, those duty changes, um, they are still sort of hanging in the air, aren't they? Yeah, no, it's just, <laughs> it's almost, uh, you know, kind of a very dark shadow that almost don't really want to talk about but um yeah i mean for those who who may have picked up on this in the news you know the government is is sort of like spreading the message that they've created a more a fairer and uh more easy to understand duty system but <laughs> when you start trying to explain it it's, ne- it's neither of those things because essentially what they're trying to do is um introduce a different duty band for every 0.5 percent of alcohol so what it basically means, if you're selling a wine, got a wine that's 11% in strength or a wine at 12% or 13%, 14%, each one of those will have a different duty uh, cost attached to them. Um, so what it essentially means that um, wines above around 13% alcohol, between 13 and 15, which is where the, the vast majority of, of uh, our wines come are positioned, particularly those that come from um, places like Australia, Australia, South America, and, and South Africa. All those wines are going to be uh, at a much higher duty rate than they than they were before. So all the advantages that we potentially may have from striking trade deals, arguably, are going to be kind of washed away with the increases in duty. It, they, they're still not they're still not got a date when all this will come in. The the budget. The, the, the so-called budget in October didn't actually reference it at all, um, and we're not sure when it when it will come in. But the 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 kind of the mood mood music from the Treasury is that they're not they're not planning on changing it. So the industry is quietly well <laughs> tearing its hair out, preparing for the worst. I think, and I think what it what it what it does is is also you know we've already had the enormous bureaucracy increases due to Brexit. And the problems have been just in terms of importing wine full stop. This is this essentially means that, you know, for every bottle of wine on your in your on your in your range, you're gonna have to have a different way of calculating what the duty is on it. So for the consumer, ultimately it means that if you're if you like buying wines from Australia, South Africa, Chile, Argentina, California, chances are majority of your wines are gonna be going up by forty, fifty, sixty, seventy P a bottle. Europe depending on which part of Europe it is, because lots of wines in Europe, wines could be between, you know, 11, 11 and 13 and a half percent. But even in parts of, of Europe, you know, which have higher alcohol levels, again, alcohol prices are going to go up. So, yeah, it's, 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 not, <laughs> it's not what we need. It's the last thing that anybody in our current situation would ever want. Uh, and all we can hope for is that the government, with all the other things that are happening 
their intray gets bigger and higher every day. And the, the only hope is that at some stage they see sense and um, either kick it into the long grass or kick it out completely. Just to play devil's advocate, we should all be drinking less alcohol. So if wines that have lower alcohol levels are rewarded with a lower level of duty, surely that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair, fair point. But there aren't that many. You know, if, if we if we could only sell wine on shelf, say below twelve and a half percent, and you took all the wines currently off the shelf, you'd think there'd been some sort of New Year's New Year's Eve bonanza going on in that in that wine aisle. You know, you'd, you'd you'd strip out at least over half of the wines that are currently on sale. So it either means that um, those clever buyers are going to have to go off and source wines from those from those countries that can produce wines below 13% and 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 get millions of more liters of them. Um so yes I mean in theory what you say is correct. But again it all comes comes down to availability supply and and and, and that good old thing called the climate, you know, and the day the sun's the sun's getting hotter, the world the, the sorry the sorry the, the earth's getting hotter and our, our wines are getting becoming more alcoholic because of it. Um and um so it's a it's a different balancing act between yes the health requirement, but there's also the, the just the bare necessities or the bare bare facts of how wine is made, and there's just not that not that higher levels of wine available below thirteen percent alcohol. Let's move to something else related to uh, the climate, and that is uh, the sustainability agenda and the role of glass. Uh, notoriously energy intensive you've already mentioned those furnaces that uh, have to rage away at sort of 1700 degrees celsius i think uh, in order and have to be left on as well um, in order to produce glass i wrote in my column for club Enologique this month that uh, uh, well it's more of a question really could this be the year that we get used to something other than a glass bottle for our wine and i said you know no one's expecting drc in pet because um we there is no suggestion that uh, for ageing of wine, anything other than glass is appropriate. But actually, most wine is drunk. Most of the wines you've just referenced that consumers buy are, are drunk sort of that day or within a week. Do you think we can finally get used to something else, a, a different format? Yeah, I mean, this topic has been bubbling around. I think every year we do a <laughs> predictions. You know, we always talk about possibility of cans and bag and box and pouches or whatever else there might, there might be. And, and, you know, the stark reality is that all those alternative packaging formats have, you know, minutiae levels of share of the glass still dominates or vastly dominates the market. So it's going to be a slow process. But I think what will turn the dial is that this whole green sustainability agenda amongst the kind of corporate world. So all the major supermarkets, any company, of a of a certain size, if you employ more than I think two hundred and fifty people, you know you all everybody now has to have a sustainability program, a sustainability strategy. What what you might think, I think what will drive this more is supermarkets going out to the market and saying we want alternative formats so that we can stick to their their CO two pledges. So I think that's that's now opening the door a lot more for people to come up with alternative formats that actually work. And I think that's that's been the issue is actually having formats that buyers, as in trade buyers, and also then consumers are confident enough to buy. And I think that is slowly changing. I think now people are confident that if you buy one in a can, it's going to be pretty pretty good level, um, pretty good quality. Um, what's really interesting actually is there's a new paper bottle format uh, called by a company called Frugal Pack. Um, and I, I think actually Sainsbury's have just announced this week that they're taking on um, there's a When in Rome wine brand which uh, is normally in back in box or has made its name in back in box. Yeah, good wines as well. Yeah, really nice one. And they and they they've got nice wines from Italy and well well sourced wines, um, good quality wines. Anyway, they they've mm. I think taking them on uh, in this new paper bottle format. It looks a bit like a kind of a glorified can of orange juice <laughs> a, a, a carton of orange juice if you see what i mean um but to look vaguely like a wine bottle but from what i understand from those who use it and have tried it out and i know that journey's end in south africa are working uh with um interpunct brand as well uh they're using it and i know that actually in america there's a lot of demand for these paper bottles and 
Uh, I think Frugal Pack, the business, is actually more struggling to keep up with demand. You know, it's not just the UK that has this issue. So I think it's there's 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 there's, there's opportunities happening all around the world. So I think actually it's, it's going to be more of a trade driven thing than a consumer focused. I think I think the uh, consumer at the moment hasn't necessarily isn't necessarily finding a problem with glass. Um, whereas in other categories, you know, there's been big issues around plastic and big issues around use of what they will happily have in a, for a shampoo carton or for a laundry detergent, whatever. When it comes to wine, it seems the consumer currently doesn't actually seem to care too much about it being in glass. I think it's going to be more the, the pressure from the, the industry itself and the need for supermarkets and major major corporates to to hit CO2, CO2 uh, levels that's going to at least build a momentum. And if things like Frugal Pack, and I'm sure there are others in the works, can deliver and actually work on shelf, who knows? That it could it could it could happen quite quickly. But um, again, I think it really just comes down to the quality of the wine in the pack and whether or not people are willing to buy once. Yes, but will, will they go back and buy twice? Will they even take it to a dinner party? That kind of thing. So it's interesting because that they, they do. There is a design challenge, but there's also a, a beautiful canvas potentially on a can, on one of those paper packs, uh, even on on plastic too. In terms of a, a kind of wraparound label, which which can look uh, really exciting. But I, I wonder if big dynamic that's different this year is that glass issue, the shortage, meaning that. The price has shot up. I was talking to someone in Austria yeah. back in December who was saying they were paying a euro just for the empty bottle for a, a particularly flash bottle, I suspect, probably a bit too heavy. But anyway, that, that price dynamic has changed significantly. And I wonder if these alternative formats are suddenly actually going to become cheaper at last. Well, that, yeah, that, I mean, again, yeah, that's why I say it's potentially going to be more of a trade-driven uh, momentum than it becoming from consumers. Because, yes, if... if if, I mean, I know um, there's a business out in Romania called Kremel Rekas who produce an enormous amount of um, wine for, well, for the UK. Most retailers in the UK take their wine. They also take send wine to most markets in the world. And they're, they're now experimenting with a recycled, recycled plastic bottle, which, um, again, is potentially better for the environment, but it's also a, a lot cheaper to, to, to produce and to, to work with. And again, they are experimenting or not experimenting. They're, they're trying to push, promote that into the industry. And I think, I think, yeah, I think, um, now if you go to see having one of these negotiation meetings with your supermarket buyer and can go to them and say, Hey, I've got an opportunity here to cut, cut your CO2 levels, but in half and also cut your costs in half and sort out your glass supply issues you know <laughs> they're going to say okay see you at nine o'clock you know bring um, it on yeah and, and caramelli recas uh, you make really very good quality wines as well as well you know i'm not a fan of cheap pinot noir as a rule but actually they for a number of the supermarkets in the uk they make a, a budget priced pinot noir that's uh yeah really, really good quality so that they are the kind that's the kind of brand that could really drive change here isn't it yeah, and it, what what you need is is very innovative producers, uh, people out in the market who are listening to what's going on, you know, and responding. And I think I think that the problem with the traditional wine industry is so many producers only really think about their vineyards and their their cellars and um, you know how to make a better wine, which is fair enough. But companies like Cremal Recas, they think market first. You know, they they they're selling wine to you know. 200 countries around the world or something stupid um, and they're, they're working with with all the major buyers in every major country so they know what 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 works they know that in Holland they need to make a certain style of wine in a certain format they know for the UK they need to hit certain price points they know for America they can probably charge a bit more and, and, and they make wines that, that work for those different buyers but yeah I think the momentum potentially can come from better formats more innovative packaging non-glass solutions but as you say, things that actually look really quite cool on shelf. I mean, the whole craft beer market has been really driven by the rising cans. You know, if you look at the craft beer aisle, it's like a sort of a modern art um, display. Yeah, they look great. Yeah. You know, actually, um, there's a company called Alchemy Wines who are working with um, 
an American artist called Michael Goddard, who's a sort of pop artist in America, and um, they're working with him on the, the Frugal Pack and how they can use, as you mentioned before, how they can use the whole sleeve of a of a of a bot of a of the format and actually use his designs so that they really that they're, they're like they're like stand out like, like we've not seen before. And I think if we can actually make the bottle or the sorry the format, you know, part of the design and the image and, and the selling point. Um, and not just something that you stick Malbec on or Merlot and have a picture of a of a vineyard. Then, then, then again, that that offers something new and different for the consumer. Yeah, and they do when they get them right. They really do look great, and that's the point. That's the tipping point, I think, where you present that really cool looking wine in paper, whatever a can maybe, and you plonk it on the sort of table proudly at a dinner party that's where you get the the shift i think which um i i really think you're right could could finally be coming uh, we, we mentioned geopolitics uh in the context of of ukraine and the um hideous sort of knock-ons from the hideous situation there but actually uh, geopolitics is also playing in a, a rather negative way for australia at the moment in wine terms uh, because of tensions with china uh, just explain uh, how what's happening there and, and what the consumer knock-on could be for all of us. Yeah, well, I suppose this has been happening for a couple of years now in terms of Australia. You know, Australia is still the UK's biggest um, in imported wine country, but um, the volumes of wine that Australia were sending to, to markets like the UK has, has dramatically changed um, in, the, in the last sort of 10 years when China opened up. Uh, as a wine market and and you know the enormous quantities of wine um suddenly went from australia into china and i think you know the vast majority of australian producers sort of thought you know this was the kind of the whole new whole new world for them really and what happened is china uh there was issues with australia and over many other issues other than wine um other economic uh trading um disputes and they basically ramped up enormous tariffs on Australian wine into China, which essentially stopped that market dead almost overnight. And suddenly you had all these producers who'd ramped up their wine production, bought vineyards, invested in cellars. You know, they had literally millions of litres of wine sitting in tanks, you know, that they needed a new home for. Uh, and many of the markets that they were working very massively with, like the UK, you know, they'd, they'd stopped supplying them. So suddenly they were going back to those markets and saying, oh, hello, would you like a 100,000 litres of Shiraz? And they were like going, well, where were you last year? <laughs> mm. um, and I think what, what you've got this year now is with the, there's, a, there's an enormous, I mean, there's ridiculous amounts of wine, of, I mean, almost like a whole year supply of Australian wine sitting in tanks. And they've got a new harvest arriving in, well, this month. Um, you know, what are they going to do with it? And um, so there's a, there's a, there's a, we may well be finding in the next few weeks, months, a lot of Australian wine on the market at, at, a, at a very low price because they literally just have to almost give give the wine away to open up their cellars to, to get the new the new grapes in. So yes, yeah, so that that again goes back to more the the kind of traditional way that the world of wine works to some extent. But um, yeah, that that's an in, that's 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 a, an example of, of how what we call geopolitics and how the how that can then impact on a sector like wine, where wine is being used as a pawn in a bigger trading dispute. You know, it's often the same with whiskey and, and, and some spirits as well fall into that category. Um, but, yeah, I think Australia, in a way, you know, let's face it, they're not, they're not stopped making amazingly good wines. and They're not stopped making incredibly good quality wine and, and, and good valuable wine. It's just that the, the problem they now have is that they, having built up such a strong relationships in, the, in markets like the U.K., are now almost having to come back cap in hand. Um, in fact, again, I was at the Bulk Wine Fair in in November, and there are Australian wine brokers there, you know, looking very sheepish, <laughs> sort of like trying to re-engage with buyers who, you know, have, have gone shopping elsewhere. You know, they've gone to West Africa and Chile, Argentina, you know, and you could arguably reason why Malbec has become such a massively popular variety in the UK over the last couple of years is because, They've been buying a lot more Malbec than they have been buying, you know, chunky Australian red wines. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, you know, we still have a big love affair with Australia. It's still, as I say, it's still the number one wine category in the UK. It's still, it's just perhaps not number one 
when it comes to buyer's priority. Um, uh, but it, again, it can change. All things are... They think this year anything is possible and all opportunities are available, you know? Yeah, that would be the safest prediction of all, really, wouldn't it? But uh, <laughs> we're doing... A bit, a bit of being a bit more specific. And it's interesting <laughs> what you say there. Uh, it's not at all good for an Australian producer, but for a consumer uh, at, at this end, potentially that is a, a, a crumb of comfort. The thought that a wine buyer for, let's say, one of the budget retailers here would be able to go to uh, an Australian winery and say, we'll buy the entire lot, we'll empty your tanks so you're ready for the new vintage, but it's at this price. Uh, as I say, not great for the producer, but actually that can knock through to um, a, a real bargain at this end, can't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I say, it, it, takes, it takes a it'll. I think, I think over the next few weeks, months, you know, we're going to see a lot more Australian wine at very discounted levels here in the UK, uh, for sure. But clearly, you know, it's in everyone's interest for for this to be a short-term issue. It's not, you know, it, it, it's great that we might be able to have some cheaper wine from Australia in the short term, but longer, longer term, it, it's a kind of a situation that they need to get themselves out of. In, in the same way that New Zealand is going to, is going to have to like learn some hard lessons as well, I think, from the Marlborough, how that's been handled and, and, and where where the market sort of comes back. Um, but yeah, Australia, let's face it, Australia is a real driving force for the whole of the, the, the global wine industry, you know, and what prices it sets for its wines, you know, the, the average price of Chardonnay, average price of Cabernet Sauvignon or Shiraz from Australia, that will then impact on what prices UK buyers or buyers will then be prepared to pay for wine from Chile or Argentina or South Africa. And they're all interconnected. And But because of Australia's scale, it's they who, who, who the rest of the world does look at in terms of pricing. So the, the, if they have incredibly short, um, sorry, incredibly cut back wine prices, then that may well then put pressure on all those other countries to also lower their prices which is not good for for those economies and not good for those those countries. But I suppose the harsh reality is it could be good news for the UK consumer in terms of still getting wines at below £8 on, on shelf. Talking of uh, the UK consumer and being cash-strapped, uh, one of the casualties uh, I, I think already has been, and it certainly will be, uh, sadly, the hospitality industry, which has also been buffeted, obviously, by the pandemic and the shutdown there. And then those businesses that survived that, uh, we've had the ongoing public transport strikes, which came at the worst possible time at the Christmas season. Then we've got the cost of living squeeze. Um, it's not, in the short term, sadly, going to get any easier for hospitality, is it? No, definitely not. And I think... Um... You know, yeah, it's again a bit like the wine industry. The hospitality sector has an incredible way of reinventing itself, like a chameleon, and and, and coming out the other side stronger, meaner, leaner. Um, I think uh, potentially leaner this year. Um, I mean, we we do hear sadly every week of more and more uh, pubs and and uh, particularly wet led, you know, um, drink only type outlets um, going to the wall. Again, the 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 big issue there also is staff. Uh, and the enormous problems people are having in actually having enough staff to to open restaurants and bars at all. Um, and many of our the most well known names, Michelin star restaurants are are cutting down the number of of um, sessions that are actually open. You know, some, some are not opening on certain time parts of the week. Also, all our changing commuter habits now. You know, a lot of people now working from home on Mondays and Fridays. Um, or changing the days of days in which they are going to the office, that again has an impact on on hospitality and and managing those staffing levels as well. Um, so yeah, I, I mean we are seeing price increases as well. Um, I think obviously going out to eat and drink now costs a lot more than it used to, and I think um, the, hopefully the consumer can understand the reasons behind that. And um, you know, there's a the, those are real real cost increases that have to have to come in. Again, I know the industry is working really hard and trying to get the, the government to give them give more support or to give more, uh, you know, even if, even even if it's allowing more staff to come into the UK, um, you know, from overseas to to help. Because at the end of the day, you may have an amazingly successful restaurant or bar, 
Um, but if you haven't got the people around to actually work in it, then then it's a bit of a well, it's an awful situation, really. It's hard to know where that's going to go because you know the cost of living crisis isn't isn't going to get any any better any very soon. Um, I think what we might see is people entertaining themselves more at home. I think we've, obviously during lockdown, we all learned all those sort of like treat yourself at home. But equally, when you when people do go out, they're perhaps more likely to spend a bit more when they do go out. So less going out less frequently, but when they do, people perhaps spending a bit more when they do. If you're a restaurant and a bar, you know how you manage that and how you keep yourself relevant. So again, I think we will we'll see lots of different changes in terms of how menus and wine lists are put together. I think wine lists will become smaller, become more focused. Uh, there'll be more uh, of a need to work with suppliers who can really give them the kind of the, the value and the, the offer that they, they need. Sadly, I think that, might, that means there may be slightly less choice, ironically, at a time when consumers have shown that they really are thirsty for for discovery and new things, I think the pressure on retailers and sorry on, on restaurants and suppliers will be to more consolidate than expand. And I think I think also we have to bear bear into, bear in mind the fact that um, the, the wine list will have to go up. You know, we talked about the duty increases earlier. Um, if those duty increases do come into play, then then clearly a lot of those wines are sold in restaurants, and again that will have a knock on effect on pricing as well. So yeah, there's there's not a lot to necessarily get too excited about when it comes to hospitality but if, if we are looking at the positives and i think um you know i think the creativity the innovation the passion you know let's face it you know the entrepreneurial spirit that that, that is so alive in the hospitality sector is potentially what we'll 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 see it through you know it will it will adapt it will change it will evolve you know which for example we're now seeing more sharing menus we're seeing mm. we're seeing more ways in which people can like bring people together so it's part of an experience when you go out um and i think working a lot more building up their communities their networks their email lists their subscriptions their, op- their opportunities to work closer with people i think, think those things are, are what will will really bring the hospitality sector forward but it's going to be against a very difficult backdrop of unrest yeah i mean it's uh, a bit Pollyanna of me to, to say this, but I mean, my, my pub down the road that does good food has a smaller menu now. They're making greater use of log fires and candles uh, to keep the energy costs down. And the wine list is smaller, as you predict will be the case elsewhere. Uh, but it's it's still very good. And actually, uh, I prefer the experience, although obviously uh, someone will be quick to point out that the, uh, the, the log fires will be emitting um, sort of particulate pollution and, and, and so <laughs> forth but uh, there are uh, you know there are kind of if if people innovate and and, and people are the the chameleons uh, that you uh, suggest then then there is there is definitely still hope let's talk about some of those trends as well we've seen an incredible boom in rosé wine uh, led by Provence. Uh, this is a an area close to my heart because I've always loved these wines um, and I do quite a lot with uh, uh, rosé. Do you think um, this has still got some way to go? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's created. I mean, I mean, it, it is ironic that we talk about rosé as sort of a, a new category when, when you know, you, you only make white, red, or rosé wine. It's not like it's suddenly created a whole new way to make wine. Um, but I think that that whole pale pink, that sort of ex- sunshine experience. You know, um, I mean, we've been talking recently about can Provence or can Rosé be, be seen as a, a year-round drink and not, not just for the summer? I think I think that's the big difference, really, is that um, clearly, you know, sales boom in the summer. But, you know, people people now, when they go out, they, they, they want to drink Rosé in, in the same way that they want to drink sparkling wine or they want to drink um, a gin and tonic or whatever. You know, it, it's, it's their go-to, go-to drink in it, and it's that flavour profile. But I think also just the look of it, it's a kind of a – Bit of an escapism for them. I think it's, it it could reminds them of of sunnier days, even if it is wet and gloomy. I think what we might see actually in the next the next couple of years actually is is where that rosé comes from. I mean, Provence is clearly the go to, and it is the want to want to have. But prices from from Provence are going up all the time. I mean, America is also switched on to rosé big time. So there's, there's enormous amounts of Provence rosé now going to America, which means is there's going to be less wine available for the UK, and what does come here will be at a higher price. So, if you if you're a fav- all those well known branded 
Provence rosés that people lap up, you know, they're all they're all going to become even more expensive. Um, you know, pushing <laughs> pushing more into sort of sparking wine territory, really. Yeah, so- well, that's where. Where yeah. they're going to fight it out, I think, because they've uh, been so clever in Provence by aping some of those um, formats that you're familiar with uh, from Champagne. So all these different sizes, um, uh, for example, you know, X, uh, that the, the wine comes in, I, I think, sort of five or six different formats. And you really see it playing out when you go to a, a posh bar where you might only have seen Champagne fridges before. You now see Provence Rosé. Uh, in equal quantities alongside the champagne, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fact, well, I mean, the way that don't go back, <laughs> I don't want to sound <laughs> negative either, but like, I guess that the glass issue might be interesting to see how that plays out. And, and I know a lot of mm. the, the branded Provence are run by the likes of LVMHs and Diageos, who I'm sure have quite a lot of clout when it comes to glass burners producers. So they may well find that they can keep those glass supplies going. Um, but I think I think overall the rosé category where we will see, I think that's where again opportunities elsewhere, but be it in Europe, but also in places like Chile and South Africa, and uh, you know that the, the, again they have, there's a chance for there to to explore more rosé opportunities from different parts of the world. Whether they can be as pale as pale as pink as Provence rosé is another matter, or whether we actually start to see that rosé category exploring a little bit more and expanding into not all just pale pink and perhaps different different styles of pink more more the paler end of the spectrum than the dark dark but um yeah i think if you're a if you're investing in a wine producer anywhere in the world that can make rosé wine then i think you'd be probably saying why aren't we and if we're not let's start making rosé because Provence may have set the may have created the category or helped drive the category, you know they're not going to be able to supply it uh, to the extent it's now grown to, um, and the rest of the world is going to is going to step up and and supply as well. So I think that again offers more choice for consumers, offers more flexibility for buyers to be able to go and buy. And, you know if you if you need to have Provence at ten, twelve, thirteen pounds on your list then there's going to be a lot of more countries available that's going to be able to to supply those those wines. And I think consumers, again, going back to your point about clever packaging and marketing, you know, if they can ape and look a little bit like Provence Rosé, they don't necessarily need to come from Provence Rosé. Let's look at another drink category, uh, sparkling wine. And I wrote back in October uh, that I, I, I feel in my bones that Carver is due a comeback the do carver has kind of sorted itself out um it had found itself in a very difficult position um with a bit of an identity crisis i think but it does fulfill uh, a position between uh, prosecco at the cheaper end and and champagne english sparkling wine in this market at the top end what say you on that totally agree it's a bit of bewilderment really about why why it kind of fell away you know i mean uh, I've actually, yeah, a bit like yourself, actually, over the last six months or so, I've done quite a lot of work with um, Carver and Dio Carver and um, had a chance to taste more Carvers, perhaps, than I than I would do normally. But And, and the quality is just incredible. You, you kind of almost forget, yeah. forget, particularly, you know, some of those high-end Dio Carvers, you know, they really are pushing pushing the champagne level to quality and, and um, you know, how they're made, the maturity, maturity behind them, the ageing. The stories, the packaging. I mean, some of the bottle bottles again are, are, are wonderful. They're, 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 the mixture are really tr- super traditional, and then also have some quite funky designs as well. So I, I think actually, to be honest, it's more. It's funny how wine buyers, as in the UK, as in sorry, not UK, but ge- generally trade buyers, sort of like they kind of go with the flow. So prosecco was all the rage. So it's almost like people kind of ripped up their, their carver listings and switched to having 5, 10, 15 Proseccos on their list. And and carver was taken out as a sort of a, I don't know really, I don't know whether necessarily done anything particularly wrong. It was more the fact that Prosecco was a kind of the new kid on the block. But as ever as ever with these sort of fads and not fads, I don't know, but with the, all these sort of trends, it's, I think the trade itself has kind of become bored of buying, of buying Prosecco. And there's been a prosecco fatigue within the industry, within the trade, not necessarily with consumers. And I think the, the trade itself has almost talked itself back into Carver. 
it's not like carbon has gone anywhere. I mean, they're, 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 these are producers who've been making carbon for centuries. So, um, yeah, say, I think the food revolution, uh, we've really changed our perception of, of Spanish food, um, certainly in metropolitan areas in the last five, ten years, helped along by uh, the likes of Jose Pizarro and and, and others. And I, I, I think, you know, this um, we, we've seen sherry being explored more. And I think uh, people have just woken up to the quality that's there in Carver for the price. Yeah, well, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, the cuisine cuisine factor and the fact that there's more Carver available to buy on when you're going out to eat, you know, and I say that sharing concept, the idea of tapas, you know, mm. when you're going out and... Um, the, yeah, there's, as you say, there's a lot more Iberian, I suppose, focused restaurant groups now, uh, casual dining chains, as well as as um, kind of more senior restaurants. Um, but yeah, I think I think Carver's got a massive potential, and I think they also hit, sit nicely in that kind of I know fourteen to twenty five pound price price point, which you know is is an enormous gaping hole. You know where you know you've got prosecco, as you say, at one end, and then you've got English sparkling and champagne pushing pushing up at the, the higher 20s, 30s. And yet there's not there's not a lot of really good premium sparkling in that kind of 1824 bracket where Carver can can really not only deliver great wine, but they deliver great margin and, and great sales opportunities for independent, I think actually independent wine merchants. We haven't really mentioned them actually today much, but um, they, I think, have a massive role to play in all, in all these conversations in terms of offering choice and diversity and there's so many more premium independents now across the country who are helping to drive many of these trends and are offering that diversity and choice and and, and potentially a new platform for a lot of these producers to to market their wines in the UK and, and because of the the number of them you know we're, we're, we're talking of you know most cities or towns now have a good handful of strong quality independents so and if you like your wine, you know you navigate to those places, and if, and if they're promoting and supporting those these carvers or um, other kind of wines, and then that that's where a lot of this energy is is now is now being driven. Yeah, I think that passion led retailing that you uh, generally see in uh, indies is uh, a, a big change. I, I think that's something that, uh, that that's that's really positive that um, can can only. Uh, grow as, as as you say in importance um talking english um uh english wine has been on a roll uh the area under vine has you know more than doubled in a decade uh we're getting more and more uh, success in in medals terms at uh, the likes of the iwsc in terms of awards um do you think um that's still got uh, some headroom for growth oh yeah fantastic yeah massively yeah and i think also what's what's i think we're there where we'll see uh, a real momentum shift is I think sparkling has clearly made its name and it's, made, it's making its name around the world. You know, it still has to make its name in the, in the UK itself, but it's it, sparkling, you know, absolutely. I think still wine. I think, I think, I think uh, that's where the real next story has to come for, from for English wine. I think a, it opens up the category a lot more to more people. You know, there's obviously going to be more, uh, wines at, at, at perhaps more affordable prices for people to explore. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I've tasted over the last year so many more still wines from English producers that, you know, really, wow, you know, like you, you just totally, I mean, I'm not, not wanting to say I wasn't expecting them to be good quality, but I wasn't expecting them to be as good quality as they are. And I, I think that it's a, I know it's a balancing act for a lot of these producers because, you know, they, they can sell sparkling wine at a much higher price point but i think if you can get more producers putting more spark, uh, more still wines into the market at, at well again using people like the independent uh, ch- um, network to really get behind and push um, still then i think that, that's really really important then the other the other aspect of this actually is if you look the number of um uh, investment now that's happening in the english sparkling car- category we're not having to just rely on rich bankers um, giving up their their trading desks to go and <laughs> open up wineries. Uh, we're now seeing, you know, serious um, producers, sparkling wine producers around the world. Not we've heard about champagne people coming into the UK, but now we're we're having, um, for example, you know, Fraser Copestick, you know, the bought bought Bolney Wine Estate, uh, 
you know, recently, and you know they're Henkel, you know, part of the biggest marketing wine company in the world. You know, they, when you got businesses like that, really taking English marketing wine so seriously that they're actually willing to, to buy a winery and invest in it, and they're not alone. There's a, there's a number of other uh, major sparkling producers in, in different countries um, who are looking at England, and I think that that's going to help again tell more stories, bring new ideas, bring more money. Uh, yeah, and actually help take the story global as well, because though all those com- companies are going to want to tell that story back in their own their own countries as well. So I think actually that that's that combined with the still wine is I think going to make Eng- English spark sorry English wine category a really exciting one over the next well the next few years in particular. I think sparkling obviously will will carry on, carry on with its own momentum, but it's those other two areas I think that will will really cement its position. Mm, I agree. And that's a very positive place uh, to leave it, having uh, started off with um, some of the grimmer stuff. Um, It's been a fascinating chat. Uh, It's always great to uh, talk to you. Um, Thank you very much for uh, bringing out your uh, crystal ball for us. And Happy New Year, Richard. Thank you, David. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, wish you and all all your listeners the very best. Happy New Year. Thank you, Chief. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Right, let's round off uh, this first edition of 2023 with a selection from the IWSC Hall of Fame from 2022. And keeping it topical, as we uh, would strive to do, Here is the wine to which I was referring earlier in the context of uh, switching supply to uh, another country whilst also trying to keep a defined wine style, in this case, the style of a Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, uh, but uh, produced in South Africa. Maloko Bay Sauvignon Blanc 2021 was a silver medal winner, a strong one at that, with an impressive 93 points. Uh, As I said, a Pretty amazing debut for a a new wine created in this way, just two points shy of the gold. Uh, The judges included Alistair Cooper, Master of Wine, uh, Kat Lomax, uh, an experienced retail buyer, former Michelin-starred chef Roger Jones and Brad Horn of Wine Social on Instagram. Here's what they said. This wine has a punchy character with depths of fuzzy peach and nectarine, pleasing hints of grassiness around the edges with dashings of passion fruit and lemon curd beautiful length and varietal purity. Just to show there was at least some cracking Sauvignon Blanc still coming out of uh, New Zealand from the 2021 vintage. Uh, And there was never any question about the uh, quality, just the uh, quantity, really. Here's a gold medal winner. Tipar Family Vineyards Signature Series Sauvignon Blanc 2021. I was actually on the judging panel for this particular wine alongside Isabel, Master Sommelier, and Andrea Altavilla also a sommelier. Here's what we said. A fine wine with wonderful concentration and refreshment, pronounced aromas of golden apple and lemon zest, leading to rounded passion fruit and lime notes on the palate. Well detailed and excellent intensity. South Africa continues to storm back, thankfully, as uh, we were saying, after a torrid time during the pandemic. I was fortunate to be one of those international judges on location in Paul, uh, together with a brilliant team of local judges uh, judging uh, the wines within the country uh, last uh, summer, back in June. Here's a wine that got a gold medal. Uh, Diemerdstahl Wine Estate, the journal Cabernet Sauvignon 2020. Uh, the tasting panel here, including Alistair Cooper, MW, Elizabeth Kelly, MW, uh, Marley Lambert and Spencer Fondormier said this, uh, complex and fragrant, showing concentration on the nose and palate with cassis, rich dark fruits, fresh cinnamon and savoury spice notes, refreshing acidity with round body and firm tannins, ending in a nice long finish carried by dark cassis fruit. Richard and I were talking just now about the continuing barnstorming success of English wine, particularly Uh, sparkling. Here's a gold medal winning English sparkler. Tinwood Estate, Blanc de Blanc, Brut 2017. Essie Avalon, MW, who was a guest a couple of months ago talking about her champagne report for Club Enologique. Uh, She was leading the sparkling judging process, uh, an incredible uh, palette, really a 
uh, a global authority on sparkling wines. Here's uh, the panel's tasting note. Impressive nose with clear autolytic character. Think brioche and toast crisp stone fruit, lemon peel, and a hint of smokiness. The developed palate has good fruit concentration, lovely texture, and yeasty character balance. Great acidity and length, featuring fine bubbles. And to round off, here's a gold medal-winning spirit, Whitley Neal Connoisseur's Cut Gin, a gold medal winner. Uh, This is a London Dry gin. Looks fantastic in terms of packaging. Evidently tastes fantastic too. Uh, Here's what the judges, including master distiller William Lowe, MW, uh, who makes uh, gin himself in Cambridge, previous guest here on The Drinking Hour. Here's what they had to say. uh, An attractively discreet nose with lifted floral nuances and delicate aromatics underpinned by vibrantly pronounced juniper. Elegant, pure and delightfully robust with excellent typicity and bone dry juniper on the lingering finish. And this is a not so lingering finish. That's it for this edition, the first of 2023. Happy New Year again. My thanks to the Chief Richard Siddle. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, You can also follow us at Food FM Radio on Twitter or Instagram. And I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Do join us next time. For now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.